Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. For what I trust are all too obvious reasons, we are going to focus today on black lives and black music, paying particular attention to some of the artists who've taken a militant position against racism and persecution while fully acknowledging that it's problematic for three white middle-class males to discuss this subject, we felt we had no option but to focus on it at what may be the most alarming moment yet of a deeply alarming presidency in the US. So today we're going to hear some audio with the late Gil Scott Heron, and we're going to talk about Nina Simone, James Brown, Public Enemy, Kendrick Lamar and others, and also about the pioneering black quote-unquote rock critic Vernon Gibbs. Mark, let me start by asking you, you know, how big a part you think that music has played broadly in the history of civil rights and political protest, particularly in the US? Well, I mean, historically, you can take it right back to the black churches in the South, particularly, where the voice of gospel music was as much a voice about not black power as such, but black fortitude in the face of brutality, slavery, prejudice, and so on. You know, I mean, how much African-American music was directly linked to the militancy that emerged in the 60s is slightly harder to judge. Certainly when I was growing up, the soul music I heard, outside of the occasional song like Change Is Gonna Come or whatever, Mm. very rarely did did the music directly address the politics of the time. And my awareness of black militancy was not through music, if that makes any sense. I was very aware of things like the riots in Detroit and so on and so forth, 67 riots, 68. James Brown's I'm Set That I'm Black and My Proud is one of the most overt of, let's say, what we call modern music. Nina Simone. But it's quite hard, actually, to describe the centrality of music to the black power movement. It's quite a complex of relationship. Yeah, I listened to people like Nina Simone and I remember hearing, you know, her her famous song, Mississippi Goddamn, you know, when I was still a child. I sure. don't know that I knew that it was re- directly related to the firebombing of the church in Alabama, mm-hmm. but I kind of recognised that, you know, Nina was this very strong black presence. And I think from there it sort of probably went into things like Curtis Mayfield you know, who was such sure. an extraordinarily sort of subtle commentator, wasn't he, yeah, on no, what was ab- happening? No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, in a sense, I've got to divide, let's say, my childhood, which is the 60s, and my sort of adolescence, which is the late 60s, early mm. 70s. And it was in that process of getting older and becoming more aware of areas of black music that I hadn't really listened to. I mean, I grew up listening to things like the blues and so on and so forth, mm. you know, and, and Motown. Then you move into the 70s and... There are certain artists, obviously, Marvin Gaye, what's going on is an extraordinary thing. I mean, primarily in that case about the Vietnam War, but it's much broader issues of, of blackness, mm. black in America. Curtis Mayfield, without a shadow of a doubt. And I became passionate. I absolutely fell in love with Curtis Mayfield. In a sense, you could talk about Curtis Mayfield, goes back to what I first said about how the black church was the conduit for sort of political yeah. thought. In, in the 19th and early 20th century, is in a sense, Curtis is out of that tradition. You know, songs like People Get Ready are actually closer to sort of gospel songs. And freedom songs as well. I mean, there's a big overlap between those two things. Mm-hmm. I mean, music that was part of the civil rights movement, like We Shall Overcome and This Little Light of Mine and that kind of thing. Sure. But those kinds of songs that were sung, not necessarily always in a church context, but in a context of mass singing, whether it was in church or, or at a protest, I think is really important as well as the yeah, as well as the popular music. And I think the two certainly fed into each other. I, th- I think that's fair. I, I, I think that even though I, certainly I wasn't aware of it at the time, but in retrospect, is is that communal singing was a central part of the civil rights movement. It was a very very key part of it, without a shadow of a doubt. I suppose the way we tended to receive it over here in the sixties was almost through the white voices doing it, rather than the black voices, in a curious kind of way. Oh, we
But going from James Brown's set that I'm black and I'm proud through to Public Enemy, for example, and it, certain aspects of hip hop. I mean, you know, one of the things I've been listening to a lot the last few days is Fuck the Police by N.W.A. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it does what it says on the tin. You know, as, as, yeah, definitely. And they are responding to exactly the sort of thing that occurred in, over the last couple of weeks. The way in which black communities have been brutalized by the forces of law and order in the United States of America, and to a lesser extent in the UK, but nothing like to the same extent. But important to note that here... Also, yeah, here, you know, absolutely. I mean, absolutely, yeah. And, 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 but what's changed is, is the advent of the camera phone, that suddenly people are able to record events, which took place all the time before. Mm. You, know, you, yeah. you know, remember the, the Detroit... Riots weren't a result of a death, I don't believe, but was certainly a result of heavy-handed policing outside a nightclub. Was what kicked off the '67 Detroit riots, you know? Yeah, and um, of course, pre-smartphone, the filming of the beating yeah. of Rodney King was was absolutely critical. Absolutely, no. I mean, I mean, in a sense, that was the first of the current history of police oppression yeah. of specifically the black community and to, uh, and to some extent the Latino community and yeah. so on and so forth, you yeah. know. And the advent of the phone means that suddenly stuff which has always happened, you know, just the police killing people for no reason, smartphones, CCTV, and suddenly these images are everywhere. Yes. And it's, it's really changing the game. Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it bad cause I'm brown And not the other color so police think They have the authority to kill a minority Fuck that shit cause I ain't the one For a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on I mean look, it's not as if people of color weren't being singled out, victimized Oh they were murdered by racist police officers before Trump. But the difference is now that America has a president that legitimizes that racism and is almost unapologetically racist. And so, you know, clearly this is why it has erupted the George Floyd murder, has ignited things in the way that it has, because it absolutely has been a pressure cooker waiting to blast yeah, absolutely and the way in which the police have responded to the, the demonstrations has been in itself extraordinary but it's clearly they feel now given license by donald trump to be super aggressive towards people that they perceive as the enemy which is mm. people of color and um, anti-fascist protesters and so on and so forth and there's a very interesting story today where policemen were allowing a white man to point a gun at the black demonstrators and arresting blacks who was just sitting on the pavement. I mean, you only have to go back a few weeks to where we sort of laughed about the freedom protests by kind of alt-right groups wanting, yeah. you know, wanting to be able to get their hair cut and stuff. And they were gun-toting protests yeah. and gun-toting protesters yeah. that were allowed to march into the Michigan, on, into the Michigan in, state legislature, you know, I mean, absolutely yeah. extraordinary. It's yeah. it's just unbelievable. And these protests were peaceful yeah. until the police started firing rubber bullets you, you, you and have a, using tear you gas. Have, and it's exactly. Just you have a black, unbelievable. you have a black CNN reporter who's arrested while a white CNN reporter is allowed to it's go so back. It's so transparent to, now, isn't it, Mark? It's so transparent. Mark, when, when did you become aware of, shall we say, you know, we talked about Mayfield, we talked about James Brown. When did you become aware of the more sort of stridently militant voices of the last poets and, of course, Gil Scott Heron? Sure, much later. Much later. Yeah. Gil Scott Heron I was kind of aware of pretty much at the time when he, when, okay. when he emerged. My awareness of him was slightly limited by the fact that I didn't love the sound of what he did. It was, you know, I mean, that's just one of those things. You know, I, I love music. If I don't love the music, I don't pay a lot of attention to it. But I was aware of him and what he was talking about. Last Poets, for me, was a very much a retrospective thing. I discovered them, you know, really quite late in life, actually. Well, they weren't being played on Radio 1. They were not being played <laughs> on Radio 1. <laughs> or Radio Last Poets will not be radio broadcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I, I mean, I still find them problematic because, I mean, whilst I think they sound fantastic and it's, it is now a sound I absolutely adore, they're incredibly misogynist, you know. I mean, and it's, homophobic and, and homophobic. Kind of sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, they're they're also extraordinary, you know. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. Um, mm. But I think it probably it's a hip hop 
certain areas of hip hop, particularly like Public Enemy, as I said, that really can, for me, raise the game in terms of people who are really political and really addressing what they saw mm-hmm. in the society that surrounded them. Shall we talk just briefly about Gil Scott Heron? Because we're going to hear his sure. voice in a moment. I mean, I get what you were saying about Gil, and I don't think I initially fell in love with the sound of his records. I do really like them now. I've grown to really love them, flutes and all. Yeah. <laughs> I love Brian Jackson's kind of musical settings, yeah. and I really recognise that Gil, despite the rather sad and tragic way his life ended, yeah. or the last years of his life, was a figure of almost, you know, forbidding intelligence. I mean, going directly to this interview, he he talks about, well, first of all, in terms of what you're talking about, Brian Jackson, he talks quite extensively about the process of working with Brian. And Brian Jackson himself is in the interview as well. He speaks. Yes. And that's really interesting because as a songwriting duo, Brian Jackson writing the tunes, Gil writing the words. But then Gil, Gil really... Gil really talks about, he met Langston Hughes, the great writer of Langston Hughes, who really sort of encouraged him and introduced him to the writers of the the Harlem Renaissance and so on and so forth. And Gil really kind of has this sense of himself being a part of this continuum of black intelligentsia. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and of course, he he wrote a novel before he ever recorded an album he wrote the novel the vulture and he was a poet when he was still you know an an adolescent so he really was a literary figure you know and i think his music is very it's very literary you know uh, even the sort of the the non-political songs of which of course there are many i mean something like pieces of a man is just is is just kind of deeply moving regardless of race or skin colour. It's just a beautiful song about Uh, being a human male. I I think a lot of this stuff makes, as you say, his his rather desperate final years all the more perplexing. Mm. You know, if if you're going to ask me, you name an artist who's going to develop a serious drug problem, I wouldn't have named Gil Scott Heron. No, you, you know, because we make the songs like The Bottle. I exactly. mean, he wrote about addiction. He wrote about alcoholism. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, let's play a first clip. This is he's talking about how the American Constitution is essentially a fraudulent document insofar mm. as that America doesn't live up to its own promises, its own advanced publicity, as he says. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very That's funny. Classic too. Gil. Yeah. That's brilliant. Using primarily the Constitution of the United States as the basis of where I'm coming from, which indicates that there should be justice, liberty, and equality for each and every individual American citizen, we try to focus the attention of the people on the inequities that exist within that document. And uh, the, the thing that we'd most like to do is make America live up to all of its advanced publicity in terms of... <laughs> in terms of it actually becoming the democracy and uh, the, the society, uh, the multiracial society, that it has always boasted to the world about. And now it's a winter. Winter in America. And he's right. As we, as, as yeah, we, are, seeing, right, yeah. as we are seeing on Go the streets on. of America, Right here and now. Yeah, yeah. The interview's by Cliff White, by the way. It's from 1976, February 76. Yeah, an album called It's Your yeah. World that's just come out, which has some live stuff, has a live version of The Bottle on it, for example. That's right. And he's in England. He's playing shows. He's playing a show that night, which we've also got the review of the show by Vivian Goldman on our Oh, in Colchester at Essex University. Hotbed of 70s lefties. Hotbed of 70s. <laughs> but, you know, he's just he's endlessly articulate and yes. interesting. It's a wonderful, it's a great interview. And also the timing of it is is really interesting as well, 76. He's made all that music in the early 70s and really developing his voice on that stage, I think is really interesting to hear him talk about it. Sure. We can listen to another clip, because as I said, he's kind of, Cliff White raises this quite interesting thing as he, Cliff, and to some extent rightly, feels that people like Langston Hughes and writers like that are better known and appreciated away from the United States of America, and that black kids themselves aren't aware of their own 
literary history, at least not nearly as much as, maybe that's changed now, but certainly in 1976, probably a very good case of this. And Gill simply says, well, that's because they don't get any recognition in the United States of America that black artists, whether, you know, are, well, let's listen to the clip because he, he says it much better than I'm saying it. <laughs> Take it away, Gil. Black people don't have the proper forums often to to display our, our artists and our uh, people of that nature. And we have to therefore be dependent on the society at large to provide these forums. And they're often more anxious to show Elvis Presley than Chuck Berry. Right, I hear that. And yeah, right. Tom Jones than Little Richard yeah. and the Osmonds than the Jacksons. And it's yeah. constantly been, yeah. a, been a, a sort of an issue. And we've almost lost Detroit this time. Yeah, you know, I mean, can't really add a lot to that. No, I mean, he, he, it's great stuff. I mean, it's mad stuff in this interview. They talk about the Cod War between, between the UK and Norway at one point in it, which is sort of <laughs> a slightly mad moment. He's passionate about education. In fact, that's kind of what he's talking about in that clip as well, is... Yeah. is He's got this line, which is, you've got to educate before you can become active. You've got to know, you've got to have correct information. And his thing is, how do you get the correct information through to people? And I think in this era of fake news, however one uses that term, I think he's almost more correct now than maybe he was then. Mm. I think it's also, it's been interesting to see the proliferation of resources, just even in the last week or so, with people actually wanting to get more educated about these issues in the face of what's yeah. happening at the moment. There's been a lot of really good resources that have been made available online, you know, reading lists and videos for people who maybe would like to know more and would like to get better educated, mm-hmm. but aren't usually provided with those resources, say in their schooling or, or wherever else. But so people with that, knowledge and expertise have been putting together some fantastic resources as well which i think has been really positive it's been a really positive thing to come out of everything that's going Mm. on sure yeah i mean gill was a fascinating guy i saw him perform a couple of times in the 80s he did enjoy a slight kind of revival of interest in in Mm -hmm. his work in the mid 80s i mean he, he you know he, he wrote songs about <laughs> i wrote about washington dc yeah uh, didn't he the fa- famous famous yeah. songs about washington and it's the nation's capital yeah washington. i think i saw yeah. at brixton academy right you know he was he was pretty great i have to say i i do think he's a sort of towering figure and nowhere less than on on that kind of the last record that he made with richard russell you know i'm new here which is just an extraordinary album with with sort of electronic backing and Gill more or less just monologuing over the top and reminiscing about his childhood and the women who brought him up it's an extraordinary kind of parting shot yeah that do, you was know a, the, do you know yeah, the record? I, I, I do uh, the process of making it was very very difficult as well I think I it think probably that, was I mean this is um, a guy who ended up essentially a crack addict oh he was completely on the streets yeah uh, destitute and I mean, it, it's it's an awful kind of parable, and I, I just don't know. But the records stand up so well, you know. The 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 famous the famous pieces like the Revolution will not be televised. Whitey yeah. on the Moon. So many extraordinary kind of Johannesburg you know, musical poems. Yeah, Johannesburg. You know, hmm. I, I found myself kind of listening to this audio and thinking, when I, mean, I wonder what somebody like Gil would think about this moment in time and what Nina Simone would have made of it. And is it different? Is it going to change anything? How do you guys see this unfolding? And do you see musicians continuing to play an important role in giving voice to the the rage and frustration? That presupposes that they always have. And I think that, as I said earlier, that I think actually the musician's role in giving voice to the rage and frustration has been always an occasional and temporary thing. It's, it's right. very that will continue. I don't see any change happening in RE. Mm. You know, I just don't. I'm sorry I've become a cynical fucking yeah. You know, yeah. that 
you can have the worst president in virtually, well, I wouldn't say the history of the Union, there'd be some pretty bad presidents in, in the 18th, 19th century. Well, it's the worst we've ever known, but a long, long chalk. You know, yeah. and that's that's up against the likes of Richard Nixon, you know. I mean, the and bar George was, w. And George w. Yeah, yeah, exactly, I was yeah. about yeah. to say. Yeah, but the, the bar was set pretty low in the first place, you know. And the thing is, is that most Western societies, not just America, but European societies, are institutionally and inherently racist. I just don't think you can deny that. And just a single set of events is not going to change that. And indeed, the things which make life difficult for people, all people, black and white, which is economics and so on and so forth, and societal problems... When life gets worse, people tend to lock the door of their fortresses behind them, you know? I think one of the heartbreaking things about these protests in the time of this pandemic is that the pandemic already was affecting adversely the worst off, which in many cases is the black Um, community. And it's this horrible, bitter kind of situation where the pandemic will actually make it harder to achieve change because of exactly what you're saying, Mark. People are already worse off and that will make things harder to change, politically speaking, because of that locking doors behind kind of attitude. To be specific about America, yes, the North, the Union, won civil war. They lost Reconstruction. But the disaster, the failure of Reconstruction immediately after the civil war means that actually, A, the civil war has never really ended, B, that the inequalities between the races have, in some respects, remained very much the same without the construct of of slavery. The division between the races in America, whether in rural America or urban America, are as stark now as they ever were. You know, I'm sorry, I don't see any changes happening. Well, I think in some respects things are changing, but slowly. And I think that it's important to, you know, hope for change and agitate for and work towards change. I think things are getting worse. You now have a Supreme Court, which is the most conservative Supreme Court we've had for pretty much 50 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I think things have got worse, certainly. under. And also Trump, Trump has filled the judiciary with, below yeah. the Supreme Court level with right-wing judges. And now you've got judges helping Republican parties in various parts of the country obstruct voting amongst minorities and so on and so forth. There's all kinds of gerrymandering politically going on. You know, I'm sorry, I think things are getting worse. No, I think I think you're right, certainly on the legislative front and in terms of we're going backwards. I think where things hopefully will improve is in terms of the education on a more grassroots level. One can only hope that that, that will change partly as a result of these protests. You can't lose faith in that. I agree with you, Jasper. I mean, even even though as long as Trump is in power, things can only get worse. But I think Jasper is right that you cannot go to complete despair. I don't know about that. I'm sorry. Well, but then it becomes almost self-fulfilling, doesn't it? I think we have to band together and work towards the right kind of change. Yeah, I think it does. And do the work, essentially, is one of the key things, is that it's well and good saying, you know, describing how things are bad and being avowedly against it, but also doing things that uplift people in actual terms, whether that's donating, whether that's educating, whether that's supporting black artists, black musicians, all of that together, you have to do that. Fight the power! Fight the power! Fight the power! talk a little bit about Nina Simone, uh, maybe public enemy. I just wanted to pull out a quote from a piece by Michael Gonzalez that we have on RBP that he wrote for Wax Poetics. Who's a great writer, I think. Yeah. You know, he says he wasn't a sort of died in the wall Nina fan, didn't know that much about her till she received an award and he was at the award ceremony and he talked to her. And But there's a quote in, in this piece where she talks about writing Mississippi Goddamn. She says, All the truths that I had denied to myself for so long rose up and slapped me in the face. The 1963 bombing of the little girls in Alabama and the murder of Medgar Evers were like Mm. the final pieces of a jigsaw that made no sense until you fitted the whole thing together. 
I suddenly realized what it was to be black in America in 1963. But it wasn't an intellectual connection of the type Lorraine Hansbury had been repeating to me over and over. It came as a rush of fury, hatred and determination. So Lorraine Hansbury, who wrote A Raisin in the Sun. So the piece talks about key figures like James Baldwin. You'd mentioned yep. Gill, Gill and Langston Hughes. So mm-hmm. Langston Hughes gets a mention here. James Baldwin, who was a friend of Nina's. Leroy Jones. You know, key figures in black literary life in America. But it, I, I like that quote because it's just that moment where... Nina kind of lost it. Yeah. Fury, hatred and determination. And, you know, she she was a very angry woman. And some of that stuff was personal, but she was utterly fearless. You know, in her prime, the song she wrote, she was she really was one of the figureheads of of rage and resistance. And so important, you know, again, you know, the way she ended her life bitter and alcoholic and but she did such incredibly important work i think yeah made incredible music and through that music i think has and does continue to inspire people it's very emotional music and it's touching and powerful i think think one interesting thing you kind of raised there barney about both what's happened to gill and what happened to nina is that it's hard to be an artist Mm. of color in america Mm. Mm. it's just hard you know that yeah, sure, maybe you can make a lot of money, maybe you can do this and you can do that. Yes. But the kind of pressures, both from outside and from within your own community, that comes to them, you know, it's just hard. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. Can't you see it? Can't you feel it? It's all in the air I can't stand the pressure much longer Somebody say a prayer Let's touch on, on Public Enemy because this is a piece by Codwo Eshan from oh, yeah. ID magazine. And this is August 1992, so not long after the, the L.A. riots that had been provoked, ignited by the beating of Rodney King. So this is Chuck D., You know, he's answering questions about the track Burn Hollywood Burn, which almost prefigured the riots, (laughs) which was was on Fear of a Black Planet. Chuck sort of says, it's like a match on a pool of gasoline. It's like, I told you so. You know, uh, it's it's almost as if he knew what was was about to happen. Sure. It's just an interesting interview with Chuck D, who, you know, like the other figures we've mentioned, was an extraordinarily articulate black musical figure yeah and in the context of hip-hop was the guy who channeled public enemy into being a voice of a, a lot more than just gangster kind of aesthetics you know public enemy were militantly rhetorical in their denunciations of the systemic racism that we've talked about what, what yes. was your first awareness of public enemy and chuck d i'm by my band's management office and he put on don't believe the hype and I have to say, I hated it when I first heard it. But in very much the same way as I hated Jimi Hendrix doing Purple Haze when I first heard it. It sounded riotous and chaotic and amusical. And then maybe, what, two months later, this massive light bulb comes on. And it's actually, I suddenly realised it's one of the best things I'd heard in, like, 20 years. Mm. You know, that good. Mm. Sonically that good. I mean, yeah. just Hank Shockley, the, the bomb squad, that sort of, that amazing so- soundscape, which just sounded like a police mm. raid. We're talking about all this stuff. It sounds like you're in the middle of a police raid. There's sirens going off, you know, and those amazing, amazing songs and, and both of that combination of Chuck D's kind of visceral, tough rapping uh, and Flavor Flav doing this kind of mad shit of, you know. Jesterish kind of stuff. Going absolutely. On. Yeah. I mean, sure. I, you know, so my first response was really negative. I, I just thought it was so ugly. And then when I got it, oh boy, I got it. I'd say it's some of the best stuff that's come out in the last 40 years. Mm. Codwo, who is a black writer, notes in this piece, he says, what happened to Rodney King was so normal that most rappers played their responses very cool. Anyone who shouted it up as a scandal fell into the trap of making it seem exceptional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's quite an insight. Let's not forget, of course, the Public Enemy logo 
showed was it a black man a black panther in the crosshairs of, yes. of a gun that's pretty timely to remember that burn hollywood burn i smell a riot going on first they're guilty now they're gone yeah i'll check out a movie but it'll take a black one to move me give me the hell away from this tv all the news and views are beneath me so all i hear about is shots ringing out about gang putting each other's head out so i rather kick some slang out the last of the pieces we're featuring in the kind of free main feature is Dorian Linsky talking to Kendrick Lamar in 2015. Someone I was going to bring up earlier when you asked Mark about whether the music still plays a role, I think Kendrick Lamar is one of those people who today is still making very politically charged and politically powerful music that's in lots of ways speaking to a new generation of young music fans and music listeners in general because he's managed to both break the mainstream while remaining political and making pretty radical records. I mean, I think To Pimp a Butterfly, which is what this piece is mostly about, is an incredible record. It's one of my favourite records of the last 10 years, if not, you know, ever. And it's just, it manages to combine all these disparate strands of jazz and hip hop and soul and funk together with a very, very political stance. I mean, at the end of each song, more and more of him having a sort of staged conversation with Tupac where he's asking questions of Tupac. Obviously, you know, this is a previously recorded interview, but that dialogue that he builds throughout the album is incredibly powerful and it shows just how much he's looking back and trying to build on this sentiment that we've been talking about that's built throughout a history of outspoken and powerful political musicians. I mean, I'll read just a bit of Dorian from this piece. One reason that To Pimp a Butterfly has resonated so powerfully is timing. This is five years ago, June 2015. It's complex reflections on identity and racism landed in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement and a string of cases in which unarmed black men died at the hands of the police. And D'Angelo is quoted as saying the timing of both both, I assume he means Black Lives Matter and To Pimp a Butterfly. The timing of both was kind of uncanny. It was almost a sign. Motherfuckers are making some shit that's relevant to the times. <sighs> Five years ago. Yep. It is an extraordinary record. And Kendrick talks about Trayvon Martin, which was the latest, probably most notorious shooting of an unarmed black youth. That had only recently happened, I think, Kendrick says, these are issues that if you come from that environment, it's inevitable to speak on. It's already in your blood because I am Trayvon Martin, you know. I am all these kids. It's already implanted in your brain to come out of your mouth just as soon as you've seen it on the TV. Yeah. I remember it's very interesting. You know, Gary Young, the Guardian columnist. The great Gary Young. Yeah. Gary Young. He is living in America with his family and he made the decision to come back to England, even though professionally... It was may have harmed him, I, I don't know, but because he didn't feel his kids were going to be safe anymore in America. Yeah. And mm. I, I, that's a pretty terrifying thing, you know, if you don't feel your children are safe. No, completely. You hate my people, your plan is to terminate my culture. You're fucking evil, I want you to recognize that I'm a proud monkey. You vandalize my perception, but can't take down from it. This is more than confession. I mean, I might press the button just so you know my discretion. I'm caught in my feelings. I know that you feel it. You sabotage my community, making a killing. You made me a killer. Emancipation of a real nigga. One more piece just to mention among yeah. the free offerings, which which is, I mean, it's actually, it's almost funny, you know, to sort of strike a slightly lighter note, but it's still very relevant. It's, it's Vernon Gibbs, yeah, who's yeah. our featured writer, a rare example of, as I said earlier, a black rock critic, quote unquote, writing for magazines like Crawdaddy and so forth in the 70s. I mean, he yeah. was writing, I think he was at Columbia, Mark. I mean, I think you know he more was. about the... So yes, he was yes. at Columbia University and he started writing for the Columbia Daily Spectator. And one of the pieces he wrote for the Spectator was just an account of kind of hanging with James Brown in, I guess, the early spring of 71. And it's just, <laughs> it's really it's sort of terrific. fascinating because he's sitting there talking to James. And this this kind of really annoying white guy interrupts them and wants to come in because he's trying to do a, a movie deal 
with, <laughs> with the, the godfather of soul. And James Brown is sitting there, obviously, talking to a young black man. Yeah, and yeah. James deals with him very, very coolly indeed. Yes, I really love that piece. I was so pleased yeah. to find it. And it's interesting also because I've read a lot of interviews with James Brown, almost all undertaken by white people. And there's a noticeably different tone to James Brown in this interview, talking to Vernon. It's slightly warmer. It's slightly less sort of finger-wagging, which James kind of tended to do. I really love this piece. I mean, it's also, it's James Brown's great moment in his career. This yes. is what... Uh, 71. Yeah. 71. 71, you know, I mean, he is actually at the top of his game in 1971. Yeah. Yeah. producing some of the funkiest music in history. Yeah, at he's that like precise the president moment. of funk, really, at this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. I mean, look, James Brown was never Gil Scott Heron. No. But he was a very, very powerful symbol of black pride. And if anyone yes. was sort of was the black president, it was probably him. There is a quote that I just quickly read out from this, which is James talking to Vernon. He says, whether I'm a legend or not is up to you to decide. You are a young black and you know what I stand for. I do feel a certain responsibility, first to myself as a man, and I think if I just exercise that, it will serve as such a tremendous force to revolution, to identity, respect and dignity and pride to the black man. So that's where he's coming from in, in, in sure. 71. I mean, you know, it's got to remember that James always saw achievement in very strictly sort of free market capitalistic terms. Yes. It's about black people owning their own businesses and all that, which is great, which is all, but that's the only terms he saw it in. You know, he, he wasn't a sort of a left political figure at all. Absolutely know, not. And he went to, he, I mean, he, he, he dropped in to see Tricky Dicky, didn't he? And, and I think, he he, did. you know, he, he accommodated Republican politics and he's a problematic figure. He was a, he's yeah. a close to sociopathic kind of bully and tyrant. A lot of people who work with James Brown don't have very happy tales to tell. But this is no. interesting where he's, he says... He also says black people have got to be able to go every place, any place they want. By the time my kids come up, I want them to be able to become president if they want it. Yeah. No, it's a, it, it's a, great, it's a great piece. Yeah, it uh, is a about great a, piece. About a person who I still find fascinating, if slightly repellent. We are, I mean, look, Mark, kudos to you for, for, for getting Vernon Gibbs on board. I mean, I think it's one of the things that made me happiest when he came on board. He's written some terrific pieces. Yeah. Even the, the last piece we chose by him, which I just mentioned briefly, is, is a piece about two hip-hop indie labels, Sleeping Bag Records and Next Plateau Records. Uh -huh. And it's just, it's, it's just a very nicely constructed and written piece about hip-hop in the late 80s, it's 1988. It was a piece written for Billboard, funnily enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, no, uh, yeah. Sleep, Sleeping Bag, very interesting, yes. particularly a very interesting label. I mean, uh, not a hip-hop label, but also Arthur Russell was part of it, you yes. know, which is uh, <laughs> extraordinary in itself. But, very no, cool it's label. Yeah, it's great stuff. No, and, and, and Vernon's a real stylist as a writer as well. You know, it's not just, you know... The fact he actually writes really beautifully so terrific well look great to talk with you about um, all of that at this very alarming moment in time every day sort of reveals new developments so mark we've covered gil scott heron the audio we've covered the free pieces and i think yeah. probably now it's time to talk about some of the new pieces for subscribers that have gone into the library this week. So why don't you kick us off? Well, and in complete contrast to the previous 50 minutes of conversation, <laughs> <laughs> we start again, it's uh, our new edition, Philip Elwood, for the San Francisco Examiner. He went to see Judy Garland play in a sort of smart supper club in, in San Francisco. Which is actually, that's actually just to jump in really, it's really funny because there's that great Richard Pryor quote where he said, white people had Judy Garland, we had Nina about Nina Simone. That's, that's, a, that's a funny contrast. Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, Elwood says, although Miss Garland looked fine, she was not singing at all well and the audience knew it. 
her pitch wobbled, and the cracking voice in the past an occasionally attractive mannerism was a sign of strain, not staging. It's a pretty bad refusing. <laughs> Judy's soon husband-to-be is kind of like walks up onto the stage with her and then they're sat in the front row and she starts, keeps talking to him and so on. And she, she died a couple of years later, so this is kind of, you know, Judy coming unraveled. It's great, though. Now, the next piece is, re- is really interesting. About three weeks ago, we had this interview by Jamie McCluskey III, a.k.a. Nicky Wine, the Carole Beat, with Brian Wilson. And that was in 65, and he's talking about the music. Now this is from June 66, basically a year later. And he's become obsessed with toys. And it says, Then there is the cop car, which Brian was delighted with, until the battery fell out. When I asked the chief beach boy just why he had purchased a police car, he explained that he felt that it was protecting him in some way. I'll never have to worry about being protected by the police because I'll have my own police car. And actually, this is it's quite interesting because this could be the, the Brian Wilson who is starting to come slightly unglued. She's writing it up as very funny that he's kind of toys. But this is the guy who's about to put a, a sandbox into his living room to put his piano in so, so he can step, be in the sand. You know. I mean, it's June 66, so, yeah, unequivocally, Brian was starting to come unglued. I mean, he first dropped acid a year before this. Right. So, you know, mentally probably coming, becoming slightly unraveled, even though he's at work on Pet Sounds and stuff. Did Pet Sounds, Pet Sounds at this house at this point? Or is I'd it, say he'd be yeah. after. This be getting towards working on Smiley. Smile, 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 really smile, smile, moving into smile, the Smile yeah. era. I can't yeah. remember the, re- the release date. But I would uh, say, yeah, I mean, you know, Brian's already unravelling a little bit. Yeah, and so this is a jokey piece because she takes it as face value. It's all about toys. But in fact, with knowing what we know now, yeah. you read into it all this other stuff. He does talk about it was a fantasy of childhood just trying to yes. relive with these toys. It's sort of like that points to something a bit deeper than it just being, oh, ha-ha, look, toys. That's of. right. And I, I think dear old Nicky Wine, a.k.a. Jamie McCluskey, doesn't really quite get what's going on. You know? But anyway, 1973, New Musical Express. This is a very rare item. Roy Carnesby with the great Professor Longhair, the titan of New Orleans piano, who had basically been out of, out of the game for a long time because he never got paid. Yeah. He was a man who's just ripped off left, right, and said, he says, I was one of the unlucky ones, and this is one reason why I quit playing 15 years ago. I just wasn't getting paid. He says in the interview that all the people who, you know, when he talks about a lot of people taking his style, and he doesn't mind it. He says, those guys, they didn't steal nothing. I taught them a lot, so I really didn't mind them using it. I just wanted, I wanted it to spread. Yeah. But he says in the interviews that basically Mac Rebenack and, and one other person were the only people who came and visited him when he was on his uppers. You know, all the other people who had taken so much from him just walked away from him entirely. Yes. Which, which, is, which is real sad. Yes. Very sad. Michael Goldberg for San Francisco Chronicle, 1981, interviewing suicide Martin Rev. Barney, you're a suicide fan, aren't you? Up I, to a point. I love suicide. <laughs> yeah. You know, they were one of my favourite sort of quote-unquote punk groups. And in great part because, you know, they weren't a, an obvious punk group. No, no guitars, just these yeah. cheap synthesizers. And this kind of slightly psychotic frontman, the great Alan Vega. I mean, I, the first album, I probably played the first Suicide album. I definitely played the first Suicide album a lot more than I played Nevermind the Bollocks or the first yes, Clash album. I mean, absolutely. It, it still means more to me musically. I, I, I love everything about their, their sort of minimalist, kind of brutal sort of urban approach to to sort of urban psychosis. I thought they were extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, this is a really interesting interview. Martin Rev says, coming out with a group that had no real context, no real ties to anything traditional or anything that was going on at the time, either in the amount and kind of instruments we had, in the kind of music, in the kind of theatre, in the kind of lyrics, 
in a way, it was like pure suicide to try and take that and turn it into something that would work. Yeah. He's kind of explaining why they called the band suicide. Uh, also, this is just, just off the back of their, that, that tour with the Clash and be basically bottled off stage just about every night. Yes. And he says, in some ways, it was getting a return on what we had set up. We were baiting audiences for years, then all of a sudden, audiences are baiting us. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Rider, 1989, The Times. This is David Toop's obituary of Larry Parnes, extraordinary manager, the, the guy who renamed his stars Wild and Fury and Eager and all those other names that he did. One line is, in this is great. He says, in the 1950s, nobody was named Kylie, Jason or Lee. Everybody was Jack, Reg, Norman and Joyce. Which, <laughs> which is yeah. absolutely spot yeah. on. You, know, yeah. you had to rename them. Yeah. And he said, Pons took the idea further with his subsequent clients. His initial client being Marsha Wilde, I think. Advising them in the development of new identities, shimmering sexual images, which were all grease and paraffin wax and metallic fabrics. The contrast against the drab majority of boys and girls who made up their audience, the children who had grown up with food and clothes rationing, was sharp enough to provoke a collective ache of wonderment and desire. I mean, it's, it is great. great. It's, 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 it's a really, really I love really the name good. Vince Eager. It reminded me of, <laughs> we were talking about Georgie Fame, also renamed yes. by, by Pond. Yeah, Vince Eager, or, or perhaps Georgie Not Too Eager, as we learn from, <laughs> from, George, from Georgie Fame's accounts of fending the attentions of Larry Pond's yeah. off. It has to be said that, that Marty Wilde, who David quotes in this article, remembers him very fondly. Sure. Isn't someone who's going to, like, you know, stab the guy in the back after, you know, yeah. they've long ceased having any professional okay. connection. So Marty Wilde's very generous about him, which is kind of good to... Good One of the great because... pop Svengalis, you know, however, yeah. however sort of morally questionable some of his practices were, you know, an unavoidable figure in the history of British pop. Yeah. 1993, a really big William Shaw interview with Depeche Mode. It's more like a special feature. He hangs out with them for a few days. A very a terrific writer, William Shaw. This is for Details magazine. And basically he talks mostly to Messrs Gore, Martin Gore and Dave Gahan. Uh, Martin Gore's kind of an interesting guy because he took over the songwriting after Vince Clark left and really sort of determined what that act was to and, become. And, and brought brought the perviness into Depeche well, Mode. Exactly. He, he says, <laughs> because I think I doesn't should... the piece talk about pervy synth it, pop? Yes. Could, could, quite significant amounts of perv gets Because <laughs> he was quite... I mean, there's nothing... This isn't so derogatory. I no, mean, he, he made quite an open. art form of perviness, yeah. didn't he? Uh, and he, got, he really got into kind of going to things like the Torture Garden and clubs yeah. like that, you know. I mean, that, that was his thing. Is that where you saw it? <laughs> ooh, ooh. Not the night I was down there, as he says. <laughs> What fetish clubs did you generally frequent? Then? This that was the only one I've ever frequented, and you couldn't really say going there once is frequenting. It's uh, you seldom. Did you actually go? Did you actually? I seldom put a torch on. Yes, I, 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 I didn't went down there once. I found it slightly unnerving. I, went, I was sort of joking, and now 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 it turns out to have actually happened. Yeah, right. Go on, sorry. Gotta, let's move you, swiftly you, on. No, you got a problem with this, Barney? <laughs> <laughs> no, not whatsoever. I'll see you down there on Saturday. So anyway, so, so Martin Gore says, I should imagine from reading the lyrics, they'd think I was dark and moody with quite a perverted sense of things. So half, the st half this piece is basically about Martin Gore and the, what makes up Martin Gore, particularly as a writer. And the other half is about David Gohan as the rock and roll frontman, as he, um, as he metamorphosed from that clean-cut young man in the early days on top of the pops. The boy from Basildon. The yeah. boy from Basildon. To the, to the guy with, like, tattoos and hair and beard and naked chest. And actually, as it turned out, a very serious drug habit. Yeah. He's he's claiming in this piece that he's clean. In fact, it was he was on the way down rather than the way up at this right. point. He talks about the band, about his, him becoming difficult. He says, a lot of the time, it's hard for them to even want to be in the same room as me, which is kind of interesting. He says, I was drinking way too much. But then I think most people do when they get to that, that age. A little drink turned into a big one. Well, what he doesn't mention is he's already well into, on his way into a heroin habit at the time this interview took place. Yeah. 
A last piece, very, very briefly. Just great to get it. An interview, well, it's a profile with a bit of an interview with the marvellous smooth blues singer Charles Brown by R.J. Smith for L.A. Weekly in 97. And, you know, he's talking about his, his sartorial standards. The people in the street, a lot of the guys go for jeans. I say, look, people don't pay to see you do that. Charles Brown is a really interesting guy. I mean, I read uh, Anthony Helbert's really wonderful series of essays, which is basically about homosexuality and black music, principally. And he says that Charles Brown was a major part of that slightly off-central avenue scene in the 40s and 50s, where there were a lot of gay clubs, a lot of drag acts. We, We forget that was a big part of black urban culture, which is pretty much gone, I'd and, say, and really you know? accepted within the black yes. community as well. It wasn't what they weren't out; they weren't sort of ostracised in any way. I think absolutely, was, yeah. And Charles Brown was almost certainly gay himself. Yeah, I, I don't think, think so. he's. I don't think he ever was out. I don't think he ever came out, but I think no. I think that's generally accepted, isn't it? I, I've always loved his stuff. I, mean, I first heard Charles Brown probably about the mid seventies when I was really getting into sort of jump blues and all that. And whilst he wasn't a jump blues musician being part of that Central Avenue scene. He's very close to Nat King Cole. Yes. I mean, early Nat King Cole and Charles Brown, they even basically shared musicians. Is that The two brothers, Oscar Moore and Johnny Moore. Johnny Moore was three blazers, yes. Oscar Moore, and one of them played with, Her play with Nat Charles. Cole. No, there's no doubt and, Nat King Cole it, it didn't hide the fact that he'd been influenced by Charles yeah. Brown. Very, very, I mean, people don't and, talk And Ray about, Charles as well. Ray, Ray Charles, Charles as well, for sure, for sure. Um, so I'm very pleased to get that in. Yeah, absolutely great. That's excellent. Black night is falling. Oh, I hate to be alone. That's my lot. Okay, lovely. I'll hand over to you in two secs, Just, but I just wanted to briefly mention an interview with Harry Belafonte, just because it ties in with the main theme of the episode. Belafonte talking in 2011, and just looking back through his through his career, really, and being asked about... So, I mean, Belafonte, you know, was a, was quite a mainstream figure, wasn't he, Mark? You know, he, he sort of... He, he really brought Calypso to the States and was sort of the acceptable face of black entertainment in, in, in a way. Uh, actually, he, being very, very political. I mean, this well, is a exactly. guy... Exactly. He did, he did more than his fair share for, sure. for civil rights in, in, in the 60s. I mean, and he talks about... It's an interesting thing. I mean, it, it sounds slightly defensive, but but he says, you know, I stood on stage in America, a country divided by race, and sang a song, a love song, opposite a white woman. Yeah. You know, I worked the Waldorf Astoria and other places where no black man had ever stood before. Those were all political statements as important as the songs that some people thought I should be singing. So, you know, I mean, there's, there's a hint of, of, of such defensiveness and justification in there, but no one can dispute that Belafonte, you know, was, was a really important and iconic figure in, right. in I, I, the I, civil I, rights I completely, era. You know, Do I love what he did? No, I don't. Do I admire him? I admire him tremendously, you know, and, and it was risky stuff to do at that time. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Because there were a lot of black entertainers who were like, don't rock the boat. You know, I won't get to play the Waldorf Astoria if I speak out, you know. Like Sammy Davis Jr. to some extent and others. You yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. you know, to be well, fair to Sammy, Sammy Davis. Sammy Davis did his bit, I think, you know. He and did. I, and it certainly was very important when he was welcomed into that rap pack. Whatever you think of Sinatra and Dean Martin and so forth, the fact that, that Sammy Davis became part of that little gang, as sort of macho and posturing as they were, yeah. you know, I think was an important moment in American culture. Yep, yep. Jasper, over to you. I just want to mention a few pieces quickly. The first of which is... I hope is you're going to a... talk about Peaches' Impeach. That's what I was about to say. It was a review of Peaches' album Impeach My Bush by Stephen Dalton in the Times from uh, the 7th of July 2006, which is God I mean, A, I, it, has some, it has some great moments as an album. I was listening to it yesterday and it's some of it is really very funny, very rude. You know, I mean, the opening track fuck or kill, bluntly champions erotic freedom over state-sponsored slaughter. So, you know, she, she, I think, is trying to be a bit more political here. A lot of the time, as Stephen Dalton points out, it kind of goes back to 
risque rhymes and lewd innuendos. <laughs> but so, really? something you don't something, say. Some, something to do with yeah. the bush. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it's a play on that but... word, Mark. I just possibly. You no, know, I don't know why I would say. No, that. I just, God knows. No, but the track the track is quite funny. It goes impeach my bush, and then it blanks out impeach bush um, so it's not not subtle but i think it's a valid point at best she is funny inventive and gloriously filthy so that's she's that's pretty outrageous i mean really ultimately too outrageous whereas there have been other entertainers and particularly female entertainers that have been very outrageous they haven't gone as far as she has and therefore they've been able to achieve yeah. commercial success in a way that she I she's mean, never come close to. He says, mix the rudest bits of Madonna, Goldfrapp, Pink, Little Kim, and Princess Superstar, and arguably you get peaches. <laughs> <laughs> but, but a big influence nonetheless on on people like like Lady Gaga. Oh, yeah. You know, they all they all cite Definitely. her. You know, without whom, etc. I think it's a it's, as I said, it's a decent album. I would I'd recommend going and listening to it. It's got some good moments on it. And topical as well, impeaching, impeaching people. Next up, Alicia Keys in London in 2010. Caroline Sullivan goes to see her for The Guardian. And this is a point where she's made Empire State of Mind with Jay-Z, obviously mega hit, so that's kind of elevated her. And Carolyn Sullivan points out that it's elevated her to a point where in her stage shows, it will no longer do to merely traipse on stage and sing. The New York R&B singer is accordingly wheeled into public view in a cage within which the leather-clad keys writhes until the bars magically give way. So it's got a bit of sort of stage show about I'm it. Struggling but... to, I'm struggling to imagine that because there's something really rather prissy about Alicia Keys. She's famously clean living. I mean, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't... Writhing in a cage. Doesn't fit with her image. No. no. <laughs> For this famously clean living similar, this must have counted as unbridled smut. <laughs> Which is quite a funny idea. But, but Caroline Sullivan makes the point that ultimately the show, even despite all that stuff, Despite the cage, the leather, and some lumpy dancing, plus a slick show-off backing band, Keys's heart is in the music, not the showbiz. She's a classically trained pianist, and she, you know she writes very traditionally singer-songwriter, piano songs, and and she she's a good pianist, and and I think that ends up coming through on the night, and Karen Sullivan rather enjoys the show. I say she bores the ass off me. <laughs> she's not my favourite <laughs> musician, but but you know such is Nene Cherry in 2014 for re-emerging as a solo artist after quite a long time and it's an album called Blank Project that Rob Young reviews in The Wire and it's an interesting short review and actually the album itself if neither of you have listened to it I would recommend it it's really interesting Barney what might pique your interest is that there's a duet with Swedish robo-chanteuse Robin on the album so that's, that's a good track and it's a kind of introspective emotional album where she's kind of trying to make a start again in terms of a solo career after a long time not making music and i think she's made some really great music right so mark and i both nana fans loved loved her you know fantastic first album back in the 80s absolutely pretty cool also by all accounts a fairly decent sort i met her funnily enough i would say probably around this time jasper 2014 i went to to some kind of music conference in oslo and i was introduced to her she was so lovely no kind of airs and graces just a really perfectly natural friendly person who had no like i'm nana cherry attitude at all so i can say my gut instincts about her was that she was a thoroughly nice person and that's what I gather she is, you know, that's what I've heard. Great. Super. Mm. Lastly, a long interview with Sananda Maitreya, formerly known as Terence Trent Darby. Oh, for fuck's or, sake. What's he called these days? Sananda Maitreya. <laughs> uh, and it's Paul Lester speaks to him in The Guardian. And, he, and it goes as far as he refers to Terence Trent Darby as he, not I, as though he's talking about a different person. Yeah, yeah, and it's a really interesting interview where he talks about it was it was that it was becoming Sananda Maitreya 
or death. You know, he feels like that Terence Trent Darby kind of died in some sort of cosmic sense. And it's <laughs> it's it's an, it's a fascinating interview. It's very long. You get a slight picture of Sander Matria being quite a struggling individual with a lot of the things that kind of happened to him in the wake of his mass fame. Yeah. But he he's made a lot of music since then still. I have to confess I've not listened to any of it. I do really like <laughs> I do really like introducing the hardline according to Terence Trent Darby. I think it's a pretty cool record. Oh, it's a fantastic record. Well, it does some fantastic stuff on it. I mean, I remember when he first absolutely first emerged and he was on the tube. It was actually almost the making of him. He did this appearance on the TV show The Tube and was just dynamite and like boom if you let me stay which is a single he was promoting at the time off that album i just love that record you know this guy is just gonna be great and then i was working with pete wingfield one of our writers record producer 18 with a bullet and so on and so forth and he played keyboards on the subsequent album second album he said it is the most chaotic session he's ever been to that basically terence had decided to produce himself Mm. And the thing was just a complete fiasco. Yeah, know, it was from... uh, neither fish nor fowl, I think. That's right. It was the title. <laughs> I interviewed Terence when that first album came out. And, you know, I, at that point, you thought this guy is going to become a superstar. He's going to become yeah. like the biggest thing in kind of neo-soul, you know. And had like three or four big hits off that album. And, Great and songs. where is he now? I mean, he's, it is extraordinary how he chose, chose maybe is the wrong word, but he just opted for something, a much more sort of obscure and eccentric path through, through his life, you know, to the extent that he's not someone that, that, that anyone really talks about today. I think he's a bit bonkers. I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think he always yeah. was. Always I think was there were some bonkers. mental health issues. There's no doubt, you know, and I know that Paul Lassie wrote it is one of those who's, who's kind of say very loyal to him and, you know, remembers how interesting he was. And there are interesting things on those subsequent albums. You know, he, he was trying to do something interesting in a kind of princish sort of vein and not be an obvious, like, sort of pop soul hit maker. But unfortunately, it's left him a little bit high and dry after all this time, I think. Yeah, I mean, the album that they're talking about in this interview in 2017 is, is called Prometheus and Pandora and, quote, is a 53-track smorgasbord of rock, funk, soul, jazz and psych Written, arranged, produced, performed, and conceived by Sananda Matria. We'll have to listen How to many it. tracks? How many tracks? 50, 53. Just only 53, Mark. So you laughed earlier when I said I hadn't listened to any of his more recent music. That's why. It might take a while. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, but I think it is interesting. He feels, it comes across in this interview, I mean, he does talk in quite abstruse terms, but he feels very, that he was pushed out of the music industry by sort of higher powers. And the way he talks about it makes it hard to take him seriously. But there's still a, nevertheless a feeling that he felt that he was pushed. So it's it's a kind of, in some senses, a sad story, but he seems to still be making music. He still seems to be enjoying he, himself. He, so. he pushed himself out. You know, I mean, honestly, you know, God. I, but you're right, Barney. I think we all thought he was just going to be such a big star in 1987. He was an electrifying performer, wasn't he? Yeah. With yeah. a voice or somewhere between James Brown and Joe Tex. So I always, I mean... Yeah. Everyone talks about James Brown. Actually, the sort of timbre of his voice was was closer, I think, to Joe Tex. And I love Joe Tex. Yes. Skinny legs and all. Skinny <laughs> legs and all. <laughs> <laughs> Right, good. Well, look, I think we probably need Great. to wrap up. Obviously, yeah. Jasper, I think we're going to need we clips from all 53 of those <laughs> in the podcast. So if you could get, get working work. on those. I'll get to work. Um, otherwise, thank I'll, you. I'll do a medley. I'll do a, 50, a medley of all 53 tracks. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for joining me on what has obviously been a more somber than usual episode of the Rock That Pages podcast. Sure. We will be back. And thanks for listening. And in the meantime... Mark, talk us out with the last of the Gil Scott Heron audio clips. Yeah, this is Gil talking about what he calls the spirit of the drum, about centrality of rhythm to all music and the centrality of the drum. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
Well, you know, like uh, uh, the spirit of the drum has been the motivating force of music for down through the ages, mm -hmm. regardless of how much how much actual credit it's gotten. Uh, the drum was the first musical instrument, and, and it directs all type of movement within music. There's a, there's a rhythm, and even when there's no discernible rhythm, that in itself is a rhythm, if you understand what I mean. That was Gil Scott Heron in conversation with Cliff White in 1976, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Please take a moment to look at the links in this week's show notes regarding Black Lives Matter protests and consider donating to organizations fighting against racism and injustice. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.